Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? You good? Good. Well, my name's Kevin Valentine. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, wasn't it good to have the Code Breakers back with us? You guys remember them from a few years ago with their song, Read the Book, Don't Wait for the Movie? Um, but we are in week two of our series, Stranger Things. And I want to know, show of hands, are any of you fans of Stranger Things? Anybody out there? Good. There's a good number of you. I love it. It's set in the 80s. So if you're just kind of going, man, what's up with this church in 80s rock music? Okay, it's in the lobby. It's in the service. We're kind of theming it after Stranger Things things. Um, and uh, here's the deal. It centers around a group of middle school students that live in a small town where strange things begin to happen. It has monsters. It has suspense. Um, things are unexplainable. It has another realm called the upside down. Um, there's a government cover-up to the truth. There's mystery surrounding it. And there are skeptics of this other world. And there are believers in the other world. There are people that know about it that are trying to hide the truth and people that know about it that are trying to get everybody to believe that it's real. Now, that's the backdrop for this series where we're taking three weeks and we're looking at truths in our world that seem upside down to our culture. And we are kind of turning them right side up and going, are they valid? Can we, can we trust some of these things that we know about? Is there evidence to support the truth that we believe is out there? Can we shed some light on some of the realities of the truth of the Bible, of God, and of the resurrection? Last week, is God real? And if he is, what does that mean for our lives? We had a great discussion last week. If you missed it, I want you to go online and watch it on our uh, kensingtonorlando.org slash watch. You can go on there and catch up from last week. This week, uh, the Bible, is it God's word? Is there evidence? Um, if it is God's word, what do we do with it? Um, is, is, it, is, it uh, is it something that we could possibly become excited about, unlike many of the people in that man on the street interview? Uh, or could we be excited about that? Next week is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fact or fiction. Um, did it really happen? What is it relevant? for my life. And I'll just tell you this, if you are here and you are a skeptic, you have doubts or you um, kind of struggle to believe uh, the God part of your life, and that's kind of why you're here. You're kind of looking for some answers. I just need you to know that God isn't afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your skepticism. He's not afraid of your struggle to believe. In fact, I believe he welcomes questions because, uh, you know, if he really is God, he's not afraid that we might ask tough questions of him. Um, and so this is a series where uh, we need to engage our minds. And I really want to encourage you to do that because maybe you think that Christians are people that don't think very deeply. Uh, maybe you think that Christianity, you know, it's like you have to come to church, you check your brain at the door, come in here to church, pick your brain up on the way out. And that's just kind of how church is. That's what you have to do to actually go to church. And I'll just tell you this. If I think if you put your minds to the tough questions about faith, um, I don't think you have to check your brain at the door at all, actually. I believe you can actually make an informed, calculated, measured leap of faith based on actual evidence. So let me pray before we dive into today. Um, Lord, thank you for today. God, I thank you for bringing everybody here. Um, this is just the right group of people to hear this message. And Father, I pray right now that you would just take the distractions away from us, whatever we walked in here with that is weighing on our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that you would just help us to set them down um, and just listen for your voice. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to each one of us. I pray that you would speak specifically to each one of us. And God, I pray that I would just be a mouthpiece that um, that speaks for you, Lord. I just want, I want your voice to be heard this morning. And so, uh, God, I thank you for joining us here. Um, I thank you that you are here, and I thank you that you love us the way you do, and you want to communicate with us on a regular basis. So please do that this morning in your holy name. Amen. 
All right, so today, um, the Bible, is it true? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Um, can we trust it? Is it really the Word of God? Should you read it? Will it impact your life? And so we're going to look at three things that are going to help us answer these questions. We're going to look at the uniqueness of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, and the impact of the Bible on people who read it. Now, I have a ton of material this morning, um, and actually, since it's the second service, I can go through all hour and a half of it, which is awesome. It's super good. Um, but we have a lot of ground to cover, and I want to just encourage you, uh, it, it don't feel like you need to take notes. You can go back and listen to this online. Um, you're not going to be able to get everything down, and this is going to kind of be an informative day uh, with a lot of information. And uh, I want to get into this first first thing we're going to look at to help answer these questions. I want to look at the uniqueness of the Bible. Um, And so I just want to share a little bit about this. This is the most unique book ever written. It is actually in a class all its own, because I know there's some people here going, what's the big deal with the Bible? Well, you need to know how different this book is than anything else on the planet. Let me give you some facts about it. Um, It contains 66 different books in it. It's written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. Um, It's written in three different languages. The original was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Uh, And uh, it was written over a 1,500-year time span, Uh, written over a long period of time. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It's the oldest bound book in the world. It's the oldest collection of writings as a whole book in the world. It's the best-selling book in the history of the world. There are more of these books on our planet right now than any other book. Um, There are more Bibles translated in more language, in more cultures, in more time periods than any other book ever written. It was written in all kinds of places. Moses wrote it in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote his part in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul inside prison walls. John in exile on an island called Patmos. It was written during different moods. Some wrote the Bible, their parts of the Bible, at the highest of joys, others at the depths of despair. And what you begin to see as you just start looking at the facts of this book is that it is just different than other books. Over 1,500 years, the authors didn't all know each other. Many of them didn't, uh, hadn't heard that other people were writing about God. They didn't read each other's writings, um, yet they all have similar experiences with this same God. The subject matter includes hundreds of controversial topics, yet the Bible authors, they spoke with harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation. There's one unfolding story, God's salvation of man. Amazing continuity for over 40 authors on three different continents in three different languages over 1,500 years. How could that have happened? There's something miraculous about this book. Um, almost uh, every other religious book written um, that, that leads the world religions was written by one person who claimed they alone were the only one who could hear and interpret what God was saying, and they alone would tell people what God was saying. The Bible has 40 different authors that all write about the same God that they experienced personally. It's unique in its claims. It claims to be the the very words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture 
came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. None of the people in Scripture are saying, I'm the only one that can hear this and I will interpret it from you. Don't listen to anyone else but me. They're just writing, hey, this is my experience. This is what God told me to write down. And all of them wrote that down. And it all functions with continuity from beginning to the end of the Bible. The first thing we realize when we start taking a hard look at this book is that the Bible stands alone among all other books ever written as the most different, the most unique book ever known to man. It claims to be God's word and has some pretty miraculous origin stories that back up that claim. So the first thing we look at as we go, is the Bible, how does the, how's the Bible different? It's unique. It's, it's a one of one. It's the only book like it in the entire world that we know. The second thing we need to look at when we're looking at, um, you know, is the Bible trustworthy? Is the actual reliability of the Bible? How do we know? And I get this question all the time. How do we know that the writings we have today are the same as they were a 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, thousands of years ago? How do we know they weren't tampered with or lost in translation? How do we know that the people who wrote the Bible didn't change it up so that they could control the people that were reading it and say it was God's word, but really it was the word of the church? How do we know that what was originally written is what we actually have? Well, to start determining the reliability of the Bible, you start applying the same tests that are used to determine the reliability of all works of antiquity. You don't have a special test just for the Bible. You look at all of, of the literary works of antiquity and you apply the same test. Well, there's two that scientists and archaeologists use. The first one, well, there's more than that. I'm going to talk about two. Um, the first one is the bibliographical test. So since we don't have the originals, how reliable are the copies that we have? Now, the criteria for this test is how many copies do we have? And how much time elapsed from when it was actually originally written in the existing copies that we have? This is a big deal, and you guys need to know what I'm, what I'm sharing with you. Um, this is all readily available on the internet. You can find it, but it's also been known for a lot of years. But you need to know there's two criteria for, for works of antiquity, how many copies, how much time has elapsed and so between when it was written and our first copy. So I'm going to show you a chart, and we're going to walk through the chart. All right, make sure that that's up there. We'll go to the first chart. All right. Go to the top of the chart. Don't you love charts? Do you feel like you're in school right now? Yes. Okay. I'm all right with that. I'm a great professor. I'm not, but I'm just, I'm going to pretend I am. Um, so we're going to go to the top of the chart. At the top of the chart, you see someone, a name that we all know, Plato. Um, I studied him in college in my philosophy classes. My kids, actually, they loved to play with Plato when they were little. Um, so it's like, it's kind of a family thing. Um, but here is what we know about his oldest works. Um, it was titled Tetralogies. It was written between 426 and 347 BC. The earliest copy that we have is 900 AD. The time between when the original was written and the earliest copy we have is 1,200 years between the original and the first copy. And we have seven copies that are pretty well preserved. Now, the accuracy of those copies, and you got to talk about this, um, it's better to have more copies because you can compare and contrast and validate that they all came from a single source. Um, there are too few copies to tell of Plato's work. We only have seven copies. But because of these seven copies, we know that Plato existed. Like, we don't question, really, was there really a Plato? No, we have his writings. We believe it because of this test. And it's like, and we know when there is a Platonic saying, like, I just want to be friends, we know it's from Plato and it's credible. 
That's a joke. Okay. Like we're, I'm, I'm getting there. Platonic saying. I just thought that was funny to me. Okay. Um, all right. So let's see. My humor is just here. Okay. It's here. It's like bottom shelf. Uh, so let's move, in, let's move on down the charts. It's important stuff. Caesar, um, we know he, he, he wrote some of his works. Uh, his earliest works were written between 144 BC. Um, the approximate time between the originals that were written and the first copy we have is a thousand years. We have 10 copies. The accuracy of those copies is too few copies to tell. The next one on the chart is Tacitus. We have 20 copies of his writings, and the time between the original and the first copy we have is 1,000 years. Now, we are getting more reliable. Is this accurate? We're getting more reliable. We're heading in the right direction, but there's still too few copies to tell. Then you get to Sophocles, one of the great playwrights of ancient Greece. You have probably read some of his works. Um, between his original writing and the first copy we have found is 1,400 years. 1,400 years, but we have 193 copies, which is a ton compared to every other work of antiquity, which means the accuracy of the copies we have to the original, it's pretty darn accurate. Like, we can look at the copies and go, wow, they're all extremely similar within a, within a percentage point of difference between them all, so we know they came from a singular source, and so we would say Sophocles is very accurate. And then we get to the best-known uh, literary work of antiquity, and that is from Homer, and I'm like, I've been watching The Simpsons for years. I never thought. I never thought. Um, but Homer wrote the Iliad. How many of you guys um, studied that in high school? I studied that in high school. I had to read the Iliad. It's the best work of antiquity we have in the world. The time between when it was originally written and our first copy is 500 years. That's like a newsflash, right? That's like the ticker tape at the bottom of the news station. We have 643 copies which is incredible because we can look at all those copies. They're all similar. We know they came from a singular source, which was the, the, uh, the original, which means that the accuracy of, of Homer's Iliad is there's a 95% accuracy that what we have is exactly the uh, original story arc, just like he wanted it. Um, and it is, it is credible. We believe it. We don't question it. We know that what we have now is what he originally intended and wrote. Now, let me just show you just the New Testament of the Bible. So let's go ahead and switch slides. This is the New Testament. We have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament alone, just the New Testament. 24,000 copies. The earliest one, 25 years from the original. 25 years from it originally being written. I'm telling you, the Bible stands on its own. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses to the events that were recorded. Now, why is that important? Because it shows that the, 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 the authors could not have exaggerated the details to make Jesus say and do things that weren't true because eyewitnesses to those very events would have refuted the circulating documents. You try and publish a book that changes history that everybody else knows. You can't. You try and publish as truth that, uh, that, that, that let's, say, let's say Barack Obama only had one term as president. You try and publish as truth that Hillary Clinton won the election and she was president, and, and you try and get that past anybody that's alive right now. You can't do it. That's what makes the Bible stand so different because from the earliest copies we have, those copies were actually from the lifetime of eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. F.F. Bruce, it's a University of Manchester um, English professor, he says this, he says, there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good 
textual attestation as the New Testament. So the question is, why did they make so many copies? Like, really, 24,000? Did you need that many? Well, let me just tell you, they didn't make that many copies because they, were, they thought they were inspired. They didn't make um, that many copies because they thought, this is a good story. This is going to sell. Blockbuster, right? We're going to sell for the rest of eternity. These copies were made and distributed all over the ancient world because they believed them and knew them to be true. True stories. Documented history. And so I say this with all due respect to everyone in the room. I believe that you are checking your brain at the door and devaluing all credible science, higher criticism, and bibliographical methods to say that the Bible isn't reliable. To say that the events didn't happen, that Jesus didn't exist, and that we can't be certain of what he said. And so I, I don't want you to hear from just me. Um, I want you to hear from one of our friends here at Kensington. Um, he's someone who at one point in his life, he was an absolute skeptic. His name was Abdu Murray. He was a Muslim. He studied the Quran and Islam after a nine-year investigation into all world religions, um, historical, philosophical, and scientific uh, underpinnings of all major world religions. He discovered that the historic Christian faith was the only faith that can answer the questions of the mind and the longings of the heart. He converted to Christianity. He's now a renowned author. He's incredibly brilliant, and I want you to hear from him. Um, but before we do, we're going to receive our offering. So ushers, if you guys can come forward, I'll just say this. For those of you that are here for the first time, let the basket go by. Thank you for visiting us. Um, this service is our gift to you. For those of, From those of you uh, that call Kensington home, this is where we give back to God from what he's blessed us with and as a way of just reminding ourselves that he is where all good things come from. And so I want to thank you for those of you that also support us online. Um, if you uh, kind of the easiest way to give around here is e-giving. You can do that right off of our website. Um, so thank you for those of you that give. But let me just uh, fill you on this video. Abdu is talking about the reliability of the Bible. And so he's going to talk a little bit about what we just talked about, but then he's going to also lead into the next area that we need to look for testing the reliability of the Bible. So check out this video. If you're asking the question, is the Bible reliable and trustworthy, there's really two ways to look at that. Is it reliable in the sense that what we have today was what was written originally? That's one level of reliability, is what we have today, what was originally written. The second level of reliability is whether or not what it says is actually true. Now, those are two different questions. If you tackle the first part, is what we have today what was written then? There are what one scholar called an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the New Testament, for example. We have some incredibly ancient, very early manuscript copies of the New Testament. Um, in Greek alone, we have almost 6,000. We have almost 25,000 in Greek and in other languages. And some of these date back to, in one instance, with a fragment of uh, the Bible called P52, which dates to between 95 and 150 AD. Now that's a blink compared to the, the days of Jesus. So we have the earliest manuscripts actually within a generation of Jesus' actual life, death, and teachings. So we have great reasons to believe that the Bible that was written as far as the New Testament goes, what was written originally then is what we have now, a huge amount of manuscript evidence. We have something very similar to that also with the Old Testament. This is what's interesting. For the longest time, people thought that the Old Testament was unreliable because the translations we have of the Old Testament now are based on a document called the Masoretic Text, 
which is the Old Testament, but it's, uh, it's in the 900s AD. Now that's really far after the events the Old Testament claims to record. So we thought, well, how can we possibly know that that's what the original actually said? Well, then we uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are dating to even pre-Jesus' time. And when we take a look at those scrolls, which are Old Testament scrolls, and we compare them to the Masoretic text, what you see is a remarkable similarity between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text, which shows us something. Not only do we have the documents preserved, but the scribes were super careful about how they actually preserved what they believed to be the Word of God. Then you look at even older documents. There was one, for example, that was burned. They found a scroll that was actually burned and you couldn't open it because if you opened it, it would crumble into a million little pieces. They took a laser scanner and did a cyclical scanning around the document. So they virtually unfolded it. And it's even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it shows us that the, that document is exactly what we have in the current Old Testament documents. So pretty amazing stuff. So the question of reliability is what they wrote then, what we have now? The answer is yes. That reliability is answered. The next question, of course, is this. Well, you can have a bunch of lies that were written down a long time ago and perpetuated down through the centuries. How do you know it wasn't a lie then either? Well, what you begin to see is some amazing stuff. For example, you see archaeological evidence that is corroborating the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, over and over and over again. Uh, people had thought that Luke had got certain facts wrong about uh, the, the tetrarchs of Abila, for example. Lysanias was a tetrarch of Abila, and people said, oh, Luke's got that wrong. He botched it because he wasn't. But then you look at archaeological evidence that shows that a man named uh, uh, Lysanias was actually co-tetrarch or a later tetrarch of Abila. And so Luke was actually confirmed by later archaeological evidence. Then you see some things in the New Old Testament that are even, even more remarkable. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 14, for example, uh, Moses, who many believe wrote the Old Testament, wrote the five books of Moses, um, lists uh, a series of cities that Abraham goes through. He lists Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, uh, Zeboim, and Zoar in that order. Now, people thought these were fabled cities. They didn't find any evidence of these things. He just made it up. But then you see the archaeological evidence that comes from the Ebla tablets, ancient, ancient, ancient tablets that are non-biblical. They weren't even written by the Hebrews. And they list in the same order Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. And those are a trade route. And people would go in that order for the trade route. Here's the really weird part. Those cities were destroyed before Moses' time. So how did he know about them in order to write them and put them in Genesis? So not only did you get the names right, not only did you get the sequences right, but he got the very fact that they exist right when he couldn't have known that, which is just one example of the ways I think the Bible begins to show you a rich tradition of not only faithful transmission down through the centuries, but amazing facts that we're corroborating all the time. And I could go on and on with archaeological evidence that's being turned up all the time, but I think it's summed up really great in one particular quote. Craig Evans, who's a friend of mine and a biblical scholar, he made the point uh, at a presentation I once heard. He said, do you know what book, what document archaeologists refer to first? When they want to say, I want to start digging and looking for this civilization in the Middle East. What document do I go to first to find out where to start to, to shove my shovel in the ground? What's the first document? The Bible. The Bible is the first document secular archaeologists look to to find out where should I dig first to find the answers? 
That's a ringing endorsement, if you ask me, about the, the, the things the Bible has to say. Yeah, what he said, right? What he said. That guy's so smart. Um, but th- he brought up kind of the next test that you got to go to. Is the Bible reliable? Can we trust it? Um, you got to go to archaeology. Does archaeology, what we have dug up of the ancient world, match up with the times, places, and events that are in ancient writings? Um, you know, does, does it, does it, do they kind of say that things did exist or didn't exist? And what you find is the Bible withstands archaeological tests with flying colors. In fact, um, a prominent archaeologist, he studied Luke's references to 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, didn't find a single mistake. Um, the Pool of Bethesda, and then I'm going to give you just a couple of quick examples. The Pool of Bethesda and the Gospel of John, John 5, John records the story of Jesus healing a, an invalid at a pool, which he said has had five porticos, five porches. It was a five-sided pool that, that archaeologists hadn't found up into the 1800s. That's what a lot of people said. See, the Bible's wrong. John was wrong. John doesn't know what he's talking about until um, they actually found what they believed was the Pool of Bethesda in 1888. In fact, I have a picture of it. Um, In 1888, they found this site that had a pool um, and they started digging. Not until 1964, when it was excavated, it's 40 feet below ground, did they find the main pool. Then in 2005, now you got to realize this is 13 years ago, in 2005, they finally unearthed enough to find that sure enough, there were five porticos attached to this pool, exactly where John said it would be, exactly how he said it would be found, exactly how he described it. Renowned archaeologist John McRae, PhD, he says archaeology has not produced anything that is is a contradiction to the Bible. Now, speaking of archaeology, there's one more piece of evidence Abdu alluded to. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Many of us on this side of the world, we don't understand how important of a discovery that was. And so I want to talk to you about that for just a minute. Um, How did we find the Dead Sea Scrolls? In 1947, a shepherd was actually tending his flock. One of his sheep escaped into a cave on a hillside 13 miles east of Jerusalem, 1,300 feet below sea level. Um, And uh, just to show you, uh, like, it's a real place, Melissa and I actually got to go to the Holy Land in April, and um, we actually went to where they found these scrolls. So I have a picture. These are the cave, a picture of the caves um, uh, that, that they actually found the Dead Sea Scrolls in. And uh, Melissa and I and our group, we actually climbed up to the actual cave, one of the caves. And um, so the next picture shows the entrance to one of the main caves where they found the first scrolls. And just so you get an idea of how big the opening is, the next picture has Melissa and Lynn and Dave Wilson there. Um, that is them. They actually climbed up in where they actually found the scrolls. And so here's what you need to know about how these were found. Um, What they do over in the Middle East when their sheep get into caves, how they get them out is they go into the mouth of the cave, they take a big rock, and they throw it as deep into the cave as they can so it rattles around and scares the sheep out. Well, this shepherd in 1947 goes in, takes a big rock, throws it into the back of the cave, and it doesn't sound right. He's kind of like, that that doesn't sound like it's supposed to sound. So he picks up another rock because he needs to get his sheep out, throws it into the back of the cave, and he hears like glass breaking. So he, he's like, that's really odd. So he climbs into the back of the cave and finds hundreds of these clay jars that they later find out inside are, are, are the, uh, the, the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these, here's, the, here's the caves that they, that they found them in. Uh, there's a picture kind of from the back where you can see here's a couple more caves where they were just kind of all spattered in 11 different caves. They found 
thousands of jars with scrolls in them. It is one of the greatest archaeological finds in our, in like the last couple of centuries are the Dead Sea Scrolls because here's what they found and why it's important. They found the remains of 870 separate scrolls when they pieced all the different copies together. Um, every book of the Old Testament is represented except one, the book of Esther. 19 copies of the book of Isaiah is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One is dated this is amazing because of what we just talked about, a thousand years earlier than the, than the, than the latest copy we had. So it bumped, it bumped the gap down uh, by a thousand years from, the, er, from the, pre, uh, the, the original to our first copy. One of the scrolls, complete manuscript of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of the book of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the book of Psalm. Now here's the conclusion from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in 95% of the text. And they say the 5% variation is slips of the pen or misspellings or spellings that are different now than they were. Now, see, when you read the Bible, sometimes it's boring because you're like, why has it got to list all these names and places that I can't read? This is dumb, you know? And you're kind of like, this, why does this matter? Why would they put this in there? What were these guys thinking? Well, here's what you find. Um, uh, the, the historicity of the Bible, its historical accuracy is actually one of the hidden markers that make it credible. They haven't found a thing yet that they've dug up that disproves a single source of truth in the Bible, which does say, says that it's valid. We can trust what's in it to be the actual writings of the time, the places, and the things that happened. That's why this book has lasted so long. That's why this book is still growing in popularity and influence. Now, if you want to do more research on your own, there's two books I want to point you to uh, that you can look on the internet. Don't believe everything on the internet, but I kind of tend to lean towards people that have really done the hard work and put it to paper. Um, one is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um, that's one, an evidence that demands a verdict by uh, Josh McDowell. Those are two books where these guys put extensive research into just this topic. Um, and so here's what we've talked about, the uniqueness of the Bible. Um, which sets it apart, the reliability of the Bible, um, based on tests for validity that are used in ancient works of antiquity. And then lastly, what I believe is the most powerful evidence we have for the credibility of the Bible is the impact of the Bible on people who actually read it. Does the Bible make a difference in people's lives? If you take the time to read it, will it actually impact your life? Will it make a difference in your day-to-day -day life? Because a lot of people, they think that it, it won't. Like the Bible, I, don't, I can't even understand it. I don't, I don't know. It's for my, my grandma gave this Bible to me. I don't really mess with it that much. Um, but but will, would it make a difference if you open it up? Let me just give you some of the data on how much different your life would be if you read this book and allowed it to change you. The Center for Bible Engagement. I love this. They did a study of 200,000 people. You realize most studies are like 1,000 or 2,000 people, and they say, oh, yeah, they all answered this, so therefore this is the reality of our culture of people. Um, well, you need to understand the Center for Bible Engagement studied 200,000 people around the globe who read the Bible four more times a week. So they were looking for a very specific set of people, and then they compared their lives to the lives of people that didn't read the Bible. And they said, is there a demonstrable difference? It's astounding, the difference. People who are engaged in reading and studying scripture four or more times a week, there's a magic number, there's a power of four for some reason, they have lower odds of getting drunk in their life. 57% lower odds of getting drunk by reading the Bible four times a week. 68% lower odds of having sex outside of marriage just from reading the book. Like reading this book 
removes the, the chances of infidelity in your marriage, in your life. 68% lower chance. There's 61% lower chance of looking at pornography. Just from reading this book four times a week, 74% chance of less chance of gambling. Just reading this book, of doing any of these habits, all four of those, 57% lower odds of those being in your life if you were to just read this book four times a week. Struggling with loneliness, 30% lower odds of struggling with, with loneliness. And I know everybody feels like we're together now because we're all getting the little, the little uh, the thing on our phones. But think about this. If you struggle with being lonely, 30% of you, just by reading this book four times a week, wouldn't struggle with loneliness anymore. It's a powerful book. It impacts those who read it. And not only that, the odds go higher if you read this book four times a, a week that you will share your faith with other people by 228%. The odds go up that you would share your faith with more people with 228% just by reading this book four times a week, that you would disciple and teach others. There's a 230% higher chance that you would disciple and teach others. There's a 407% higher chance that you would memorize scripture if you read it four times a week. Why is there such a difference between the life of someone who doesn't read and the life of someone who does? I believe it's because of the hope that's found in this book. There's hope found in this book. There's hope found in a heavenly father that truly and distinctly loves you just as you are. There's hope of becoming the best version of yourself possible with actual instructions on how to do it. There's hope with, of being a part of something that's bigger than yourself, that, that something that will last to e eternity. There's hope of, of someone to go to with the problems that you have in your life when you feel like no one else cares about you. There's hope of a God that loved you enough to die for you. That's in the, the words of this book. There's hope found in a God that knows everything about you and still wants to be in relationship with you. There's hope of a God that knows every worst part about you and still loves you with everything he has. In every area of your life, I'm just telling you, this book can and will breathe life into you. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart as every generation has picked up this book. It has been alive for that generation. Think about that. This book still matters. This book is relevant to us. It's a living document. This book speaks into relationships, to parenting, to marriage, to your career, to your wealth, to your freedom, to relational conflict, to integrity, character, raising teenagers, being a teenager, dealing with authority, government, love, sex, dating, evil, loneliness, depression, how to deal with tragedy. Not only does this book document events that happened in history, it speaks into the reality of your life and my life now. It speaks individually, 2 Timothy 3.16, all the holy writings, and I just want you to let this verse seep into your thoughts for just a moment. All the holy writings are God-given and are made alive by him, him being God. Man is helped when he is taught God's word. Why do I think we need to be in church every Sunday? Why? Because you and I are helped when we're taught this book. You just are. It shows what is wrong. It changes the ways of a man's life. 
how many of you want the way of your life changed right now? How many of you need life change? It changes the way of a man's life. It shows him how to be right with God. And it gives those who belong to God everything they need to work well for him. And all we have to do is pick it up and read it. Is pick it up and read it. It's God's instruction manual for life. And let me just tell you, he's the author of life. He created life. He gave you your life. And he gave you an instruction manual to say, here's how you can live it well. Here's how you can use every bit of the life that I gave you to live every bit of the life you dream of living. And it's in how to format. And I will just speak to you from my experience. More life change has happened in my life. I'm a better man. I'm a better leader. I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. I'm more like Jesus in my own life because of the words that are in this book than any other thing in my life. When you add in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's spirit living in me with the words that he wrote. There are just times in my life where I open up this book and stuff just leaps off the pages into my heart and changes me into who I can't be on my own. Because there's power in this book. And the biggest part of its power is in telling the story of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh who came to this earth, died for your sin and mine and was resurrected on the third day and says to anyone in this room, if you believe in me, you will not perish but have everlasting life. You want peace in your life about the last day of your life. You want peace about knowing that the day you take your last breath on this planet, you know where your next breath is going to be. It's found in here. There's no other place on planet Earth where it is described in detail like it is in this book. That's how powerful it is. And we're going to talk about the resurrection next week. But I just want to say this to you. Um, maybe today is your day where you're ready to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day where you go, you know what? I'm done just pretending. I'm done just kind of playing around with it. I'm going to accept Jesus today. And I'll just tell you today, there's not a better day than today for you to accept Christ into your life and invite him in and say, I believe. Would you forgive me? Would you help me to live my life differently? I will read your book and let you talk to me. And let you change my life. And if that's you over the next few minutes, all you got to do is invite him in. And he promises life change. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for just this moment right now, God. There is um, so much work that you put into giving us your word in such a way that we can just trust it. Lord, I, we didn't even scratch the surface of all the proof and evidence that's out there that this book is different than any other book on the face of the earth. And God, I thank you that you um, thought to give it to us. If you're a God that created everything, you are definitely powerful enough to create a book and write a book through people that really shares the truth about who you are and who we are. God, I thank you that you reveal that to us every time we open up your scriptures. And so, Lord, today... As we close out our service with a few songs, Lord, I just pray that you would just cement this truth into our hearts and may the words that we're about to sing ring truth in our hearts because they are found and written from your word, which you have told us. 
has the power to change us from the inside out. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for this moment in your holy name. Amen. I want to ask you to please stand up with me and we're going to just close our service out singing a couple of songs. And this first one is just a song that really identifies with the truths in the Bible and it's a declaration of what we believe that we find written in scripture.